Hello everyone, I'm Naya Swami Asha and I'm very happy to be with you again to be talking about this wonderful book, The Essence of Self-Realization. I keep forgetting, this is my 1990 copy, so the contents of this book are still the same but the cover looks a little different, it's been upgraded some, but the uh, title is the same. The Essence of Self-Realization, The Wisdom of Paramhansa Yogananda. And we are simply going through this book uh, chapter by chapter and building up a, an understanding of the spiritual life that this book will give us. Um, it's, it's been a great exercise so far and I, it has all the promise of being good all the way through to the end. So we're up to chapter 3 and the title of this chapter is The Dream Nature of the Universe. What we've passed through so far is the purpose of life and the path, the folly of materialism, the purpose of life, and now the dream nature of the universe. I put a couple of notes in this chapter that says, well, it seems pretty darn real to me. And that is really the essence of the issue here. It's, it, it's fascinating to read because uh, Master tries very hard and his his reasoning is beautifully articulate to try to explain to us that this world is not what it seems and to explain why it isn't and what it actually is. But this is one of those points where there's just such a a contradiction between the kind of self-evident through the senses experience that we have and what the masters and the saints tell us. One of the great geniuses of Swami Kriyananda as a teacher, which I've often articulated is the way he could make ideas that were really beyond our capacity to comprehend. He could bring it down to something where we could at least understand the principle. And then once we could understand the principle, we could build from there. One of my favorite examples is when he uh, talked about God is bliss and it's the nature of bliss to want to share itself. Um, you have to start with the premise that God is bliss, but he can still say. And then he just uses the example. Isn't it obvious when you find something that you really like? I mean, let's talk about a restaurant or a movie. We're not talking about infinity or self-realization. He says the first thing you do is you want to tell someone. I went just locally not too long ago and found a very nice restaurant. I got business cards and takeout menus and posted it on the bulletin board in our community and wrote a couple of notes to people. It just... I was enjoying it more when I thought that others would also enjoy it. And there's a a consistency uh, to the universe that is a very important principle. In fact, Master says something in this very chapter, which I just love. It's toward the end. It's, uh, in fact, let me see where he says it. Let me just find it in here. Uh, Yes, it's number seven in chapter three. He says, even miracles must have some basis in reality. I absolutely love that sentence. Sometimes you read these books over and over, and I did say this is my 1990 copy, so that's like, what, 24 years I've had this book? But I never really like saw that. Even miracles must have some basis in reality, which is miracles appear to be a complete departure from what we know, but they're just... Uh, uh, a little farther down the road of the same road that we're already walking. So there are several principles in this dream nature of reality, and I'm likely to skip around a little bit just to make it real, Uh, real for us. Well, let's see, 
to make the dream nature of, the re- of reality, the dream nature of the universe, real to us. I won't go any farther. I'll just leave it and just let it hang out there. But Master tries to explain to us how the illusion of reality is created. And he explains in, uh, let me just get the number so that we know, he talks about um, the waves on the ocean. I mean, I, because I'm skipping around so much, I don't know exactly where it is. Let me just find it. Yes, there it is, number 10. And he's talking about how uh, uh, that the way God created the universe, and I'm just going to say these things because I don't really know them, but this is what Master says. There's, there is oneness, and then the illusion of the material world is created by vibration. That, that, that one simply starts moving. It doesn't actually become two realities. It just begins to move, vibrate. And in the Bible, they call that the word. They call that the wind upon the water. Um, Swamiji used a very interesting example to make this point by talking about the propeller on an airplane or the um, parts of a fan like this. When it's hot and you plug in an electric fan and it starts whirling and you look at it and it appears to be a solid piece of something like a dish spinning. Or you see the propellers on an airplane which spin very, very fast. You look at it and it it looks to be a solid disc. But when that vibration stops, when the movement stops and the propeller comes back, you see actually that it's two or three or ten, but just separate spines that are all moving so quickly that the vibration blurs the separation, blurs the reality of what you're looking at. So Master explains that in the beginning is the consciousness of God. There is no other um, foundation. And that vibration of the Spirit is absolutely still. And then it vibrates. And it moves like this. But it moves so quickly that it begins to give us the impression that there's actually a material universe here. Uh, Physicists and other scientists have been looking into this really closely and they have all declared without any, without the necessity for any reference to God or spirituality that matter is in fact just energy vibrating. That it's a lot of little atoms and they're all just spinning their little hearts out and with such intensity that we have the impression that there's a solid universe here. Well, that's fascinating to uh, contemplate, but the question is, how can I use that information to actually change my experience of life? Um, for me, I, I can speculate and I'm mildly interested in realities that are um, merely theoretical and beyond my experience. But what really gives uh, life and substance to my spiritual search is my, is my experience of life. Now, earlier on, before I come back here to the duality and the waves, earlier in this chapter, when Swami, uh, when Master's beginning to make the case, he tries to get us to understand the dream nature of this universe. And he's like Swamiji, learn from Master. He, he gives us an example that we all know about, which is the dream nature of what we call dreams, 
in our sleep state, our subconscious sleep. Um, dreams are so fascinating because, of course, they're so real when they happen. And we only recognize them as dreams when we, were, we are drawn out of subconsciousness to the conscious level and can look objectively at what we just went through. But the um, power and fascination of subconscious sleep dreams is that when we are having them, they are every bit as real as any other experience we have. Whether they're blissful, whether they're nightmares, whatever they might be, when, when they're happening, it is the only reality we know. And if we're frightened, if we're hurt, if we're disappointed, I used to have this persistent dream where I would do something uh, very unfortunate, nothing in particular, it would vary a little bit, and that unfortunate action would cause um, the destruction of my reputation or my position or my friendships or my relationships, whatever it might be, that something, some act, some thoughtless act on my part would have catastrophic consequences in my life. And I would feel so just bummed out. I mean, how else could you feel? And there was also this feeling of, I know better. How did I get myself into this situation? And then I would wake up, always with such a tremendous sense of, of relief. Because even in the dreams, there would be the slight sense of, I'm not this stupid. How did I manage to do this? But then I would wake up and it wouldn't be there. And oh, I'd be so relieved. Just all that misery, all the anticipated challenge of uh, facing into whatever it was. Ah, what a relief. It didn't really happen. Now, Master tries to get us at least to understand in theory that the actual life that we're living now, which captures us, um, certainly no less vividly than a sleep dream, but not more. The element here only is time. And then I'll talk about time in just a moment, but we're completely captured by this. We feel that we're young or we're old or we're sick or we're um, bankrupt or we're, we've been abandoned. Um, we're being tortured. We're imprisoned. I mean, name it. You can dream it in your sleep and you can dream it in your wakefulness. But uh, the other aspect, of course, of a sleep dream is it, th that there's no sense of time until you wake up. And again, Master's trying to explain to us that this feeling that we have of time, Master describes it as the, the, the foundation skeleton. Time and space is the foundation skeleton upon which this whole illusion is built. And when you think about it, you see time is essential to it. Because... We know that the dream is not a dream because we wake up. When we're in it, it seems forever. So we're here now, and it seems forever. Master talks about you can dream that you get on an airplane and you fly from America to India, 12,000 miles, but you wake up and you're still in your bed. You haven't gone an inch. You can dream that you were a young person and then you got married and then you got old and then you died. You can dream the whole saga of one lifetime and it's a whole lifetime while it's happening. And then you wake up, and a few hours have passed, a few minutes have passed. Now, in theory, as I'm saying, we can, we can imagine the parallel. But the difficulty is, when we wake up, means to die, usually, or 
if we have some meditative experience or a near-death experience that actually completely snaps the illusion. I recall reading about a man who was dying of cancer and he was very um, agitated and unhappy about it. And then one day, over the course of just an hour, his, his attitude changed completely and he became very relaxed and happy and the fact that he was dying was just of no consequence to him anymore. And he explained to his astonished family, he said that he'd had a vision. He'd actually walked, walked to the other side. He'd woken up briefly from the dream of this life. And what he said was so amazing to him is that when he woke up, as he put it, and this was the vivid part I loved, he realized that this whole world he was living in uh, was like a, like a stage set, like a set on a sound stage, where it had edges, and it was just a false front that was put up, and there were edges. And as soon as you could see those edges, you realized this was just a tiny little blip in this far greater reality. And he said he couldn't see the edges anymore, he could, but he could tell that the edge was just right behind him, just out of his sight. But he could sense that it was there because he, he had seen it. And once he'd seen it, what was there to be concerned about? I was thinking as I said that I've occasionally been invited to be a guest on a television show. Um, a year, many years ago when Ananda first published its cookbook, like this would have been, what, 1986? The pub, the, what we so publish. Simply Vegetarian. At that time, it was just called the Ananda Cookbook. And the publication of the back, that book coincided with uh, David and I, my husband. Uh, we had an, a motorhome that belonged to Ananda, and we went on a, a three-month tour from Seattle to Houston, Texas, down the West Coast, across the Southwest. And to publicize that book, I, uh, somebody booked me onto a lot of little television shows in all those little cities. So I made zucchini patties in Scottsdale, Arizona, and in Austin, Texas, and in uh, Longview, Washington, and just in all these little TV stations. I went there and I made zucchini patties and talked about vegetarianism. Uh, our cookbook was one of the very early uh, vegetarian cookbooks. Now it's, they're a dime a dozen, but we were pioneers, so it was a big deal. And uh, so I, I have this vivid picture of these uh, television sets of course, you look on the television and there's a box around it like that. So, you know, Ted and Martha are sitting there on their couch with their little table in front of them and their flowers and they're chatting with each other. And You can't tell that just inches away there's all these people with cameras and stuff. Nowadays, when they do interviews and things on television, I've seen it's popular to pull back with one other camera and show you the set. But that was never done in those days. You just thought you were in a whole world. Except when you looked at it, it was, it was slightly comical. Now, we, it's hard for us to look at our lives and see that they're slightly comical because we don't have a sense of the illusion of time and space. Now, here's where I'm going with all of this. We can know that as a principle. And uh, death and dying, to me, have always been... Um, extremely central to the concept of life because past life memories certainly of how many incarnations have we had the masters tell us it's millions 
and in every one of them we died, every single one of them, because here we are. So we've died over and over and been through this over and over, and some part of us really remembers. And when you come deeply onto the spiritual path, it's because a lot of you really remembers. Even if you can't conjure it up in detail, the lesson is with you. And for me, the, the fact of dying, in other words, the fact that at sooner or later this whole thing would dissolve. And so no matter how long it seemed to last, no matter how intensely real the adventures, sooner or later it would all dissolve. And it seemed to me that that was a real important fact. That if it was all going to dissolve in the end, you had to think differently about what you were doing. Because it wasn't just a question of getting it all lined up and that was going to be that. At some point, you would be abandoning the whole thing and what what would you take with you? What would you be? Now, when Master, and this is how he explains it in this book, when Master's drawing the analogy between this world and the world of sleep dreams, what he points out is, how he explains it is, no matter how complicated your sleep dream, it only exists in your consciousness. It's, it's merely because you have imagined it and merely because you have imagined it does not make it any less intensely real. It only exists in your consciousness, but in as much as we are our consciousness, then the fact that it exists in consciousness means that it exists. There's this fascinating aspect of dreams, which is that even if somebody is sleeping right next to you, even if somebody has their arms wrapped around you while you're sleeping, you can be at the top of the Taj Mahal, and they can be on Maui surfing in the ocean. And you can be as close together as two bodies can be, but the integrity of your consciousness, you're each living in completely separate worlds. Now, in our waking state, there are more shared realities. In the subconscious state, um, the nature of subconsciousness is that it is entirely subjective. So you're on the, the Taj Mahal and he's uh, surfing on Maui, and you can both think that the other person is with you, but you're really each in your own subconscious world. It's only in your consciousness, and when you wake up, it's gone. So when we die, as I've come to understand from the Masters and whatever memories I have, uh, incarnational memories I have, and intuition, consciousness remains. We don't, we don't lose consciousness, we just discover that everything we were experiencing existed only in our consciousness. Because everything is consciousness. Everything that we experience. In fact, what's so fun to think about is the fact that you realize that you're always and only ever experiencing your own consciousness. Even if objectively you know that you were both, whoever you're trying to share with, were in the same place. But there's always this, it, it, how it happens for me is the only way it really happens. People compare notes. Memories are different. Perceptions in the moment are different. Um, happiness or sadness is profoundly different. So one person may have an extremely affectionate regard for a small black dog, and being in the presence of a small black dog is 
just the happiest thing in the world for them. Another person may have a deep, deeply ingrained fear of all dogs, especially small black dogs. And so the two of you are facing exactly the same, even a shared reality, but within your consciousness, one person is uplifted and enlightened by that, and the other is terrified. Because it's all just a matter of what's going on in your consciousness. Now, that principle, once you start thinking about it seriously, um, has, well, literally infinite ramifications. So, the beginning of the idea that this, the dream nature of the universe, the, the practical, useful nature of, the, of the, the idea, the dream nature of the universe, is the fact that, that life exists only in your consciousness. Now you see, consciousness, then, is something that we have something to do with. We can't necessarily answer the question as to why God did this in the first place. Um, we may not necessarily be able to really grasp that it's just energy vibrations around us. But if we do grasp the idea that all I ever experience is my own consciousness, suddenly this enormous and fascinating um, potential opens up in front of us. I remember when I, I first grasped this idea, I was still in college, and I have to honestly say, I ingested something which changed my consciousness. I never drank or anything like that, but I came up in the hippie era, and I ingested a little something that, that chemically shifted my consciousness. I was never, as I was saying in some webinar I was giving recently, I was never a very good hippie because I really, I really did not like having my consciousness changed. I didn't really like drinking, I didn't like drugs. I just, I like having my own mind under my own mastery. But that, the result of just chemically induced shift of consciousness, and that was the only possible explanation for it, wasn't a shift of perspective or a feeling even, it was just suddenly I saw that my perception of the universe was arbitrary. That if I shifted my consciousness, everything was different. In other words, the cornerstone of all that we call real is your state of consciousness. Once I got that, I never looked back. I didn't, I mean, why take drugs? What's the point? They don't do anything really for your consciousness. It's just, it's just another dream. It comes and it goes. But you can really alter your consciousness. And you see, if you, if you alter your consciousness, you alter the nature of the universe. Everything. The first uh, uh, entry here in this section, the dream nature of the universe, is the classic story of the man whose only son was killed by a cobra. And he was sitting on, quietly under a tree and his wife came to him in a state of enormous despair. Our only son has been killed by a cobra. And to her fury... Her husband, the father of that only son, just did not respond or react at all. He remained completely calm. And she became enraged with him. You heartless, unfeeling man. Didn't you hear me? Our only son was killed by a cobra. And the man explains. He said, last night I dreamt that I was a king. And I had seven sons. And all seven of my sons were killed by the bite of a cobra. And he said, and now I can't decide whether I should mourn 
for the seven sons in that dream or for the one son in this dream? Now, that's a very interesting and fascinating lesson because, you see, it's all consciousness. And this world also only exists in consciousness. So that's the first premise. And that's when I was 18. That was a real um, deciding reality for me. Oh, my. I I really need to get down to the main event here. The main event is not my college degree or anything like that. The main event is, what is my consciousness? And where is it? And how can I bring it under control? And what disrupts it? And what calms it so that I can experience, well, the joy that I long to experience and escape the suffering that seems to be so inherent all around me and nobody seems to have much of an idea what to do about it. So now this leads us to the progression that Master has in this chapter himself. And this is where I was touching on a little while ago, but I realized I had to lay a more of a foundation. When he starts talking about, and Master just follows a certain logical train, which he explains here, about what is behind, you know, what is behind matter is energy, what's behind energy, thought, consciousness, and he traces it back to God, and God is the only absolute. Um, I won't really try to reiterate all that. Master does it much better than I. Um, But the end point is, where I was a little while ago, there is the one consciousness of spirit, And this whole world is created by the movement of that one reality. And because it's moving from a point of stillness, it can never just stay on one side or the other. Because it's anchored in the center, it goes, it vibrates, just like a tuning fork. Tuning fork, you hit it, and it vibrates like that, and it creates sound. Well, actually, consciousness vibrating creates sound, creates light. All of our senses are activated by that vibration. Now, the the one spirit moving in duality, and you see the nature of the universe everywhere you look, is it's always balancing opposites. And as we progress through this, you see that's one of the reasons we suffer so much, is that because... We are a collection of opposites, too. We are what we like and what we don't like. What we call myself and not myself. Everything. The sun rises and the sun sets. It's summer and then it's winter. We are young and then we are old. There is male, there is female. Um, This water in this cup, the tea in this cup was hot. And pretty soon it's going to be cold. And I prefer that it stay hot. But it won't. Because the nature of hot is to gradually transmute itself into cold. Sooner or later it happens, no matter how long the cycle, no matter how expensive the sippy, the insulated sippy cup we put it in. It's the nature of hot eventually to become cold. So if I'm going to enjoy it, I whether or not hot is more pleasurable than cold is really just a perception in my own consciousness, isn't it? even the fact that it tastes hot or cold. But I won't challenge us too far. But whether I like it or not is a question of the degree to which I myself have tied my happiness to one side or other or the other of the duality. (coughs) 
And some of these dualities seem self-evidently one is more desirable than the other. You know, to not be in pain versus to be in pain. To be loved instead of to be not loved. Um, To be young and beautiful, to be old and decrepit. One of my friends, she was so funny, she, she announced one day, she basically said, I'm just never going to be slim, young, and gorgeous again in this incarnation. <laughs> and she just decided to get over it. I was amused speaking of that phrase. There was a, a very good uh, documentary film I saw once, and it was put together by medical doctors. And the medical doctors themselves were outraged by the inability of people as a whole to accept the fact of death and the, the distortion of medical practice that has come about because people are just so desperately des- desperate to stay in their bodies when it's so clear that their bodies are trying to kick them out, that it's over. I, I've read somewhere, and I think it's a relatively true fact, that like 70 cents of every medical dollar is spent in the last six months of life to extend life by an average of three weeks, and that the entire cost of healthcare crisis is caused because of that. That if we had a more um, enlightened relationship to death, then many other things would fall into balance. So the end point of this was an interview with a number of doctors, and one of the doctors said he would really like it to be part of, of common medical practice you could sit down with your patients and say, you're mortal, you are going to die, get over it. (laughs) Just like that. And yes, we are mortal, we are going to die, get over it. Okay, but we don't. We say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. And we work really hard to get the half of of the equation set up just the way we want it, We grip it for everything we're worth, and then it begins to slip away, and we freak out. I remember Swamiji, one of the earliest quotes of his that I remember from 1968, 69 it must have been, because that's when I met him. He said, uh, the only certainty in life is change. Most people do not enjoy change. Therefore, most people suffer. Okay, now this is where the dream nature of the universe... The, the fact that God is singular and still, and this world is just opposites, alternating opposites, becomes very practical. How, no matter how, whether how far you believe this or not, if you start paying attention to your life experience, you will see, because it's all consciousness, the more you live in attachment to half of the equation, the more you will suffer when that half of the equation goes away. Now, that doesn't mean that you are indifferent to the natural side of life, but the degree to which you allow your consciousness to move completely away from center and to cling to one side or another, it is the degree to which you will suffer when it goes back the other way. Because first, it will inevitably go back the other way, and all you ever have is your consciousness. So your consciousness can participate in the dream. You can even enjoy the dream. It's it, On our particular path, both Swamiji and Master himself set us an example of how to live in this world. 
And they, they lived with full commitment in this world. They uh, had, were very ambitious to make things happen. They committed themselves in their friendships with people. They believed deeply in their work. They worked very hard. But their consciousness was always in the center. And if it was necessary to create this reality, and they put themselves into it completely, if it succeeded for a time, that was wonderful. And if it didn't, you see, it was all consciousness. It only existed in their own consciousness. And everything except consciousness itself is just a dream. It just lasts for a while. But what we achieve, you see, and what we acquire in our own consciousness is what we always have. It's what we always have. Swamiji made an interesting statement once. He, he said that his, he was never different in his subconscious dreams than he was in his waking state. In other words, he had no... Um, what he really was saying is he had no vrittis in his chakras. That's what he actually said. There was no hidden reality in his nature. I was just describing to you how I would have a dream in which I'd do something dishonorable. And in the dream, I could actually do something dishonorable. I would instantly regret it, which I thought was some progress. But I could still do it. In my conscious life, I would like to think I, I wouldn't even do it. But in my subconscious life, there was still either a memory or an inclination. I think of it as a past life memory. In fact, I think those dreams were in reinforcing past life memories. But still, I could do it. And I was always shocked by myself for doing something dishonorable, but I would still do it. And Swamiji said, in his sleep, he's exactly the same as he is in his waking state. It's, it's all cleared out. In other words, he stands right in the center, and the, the waves of life can't shift him. Now, even-minded and, cheer, even minded and cheerful is how it's expressed on the yogic path. You should always be even-minded and cheerful, the yogis tell us. And when you first hear that, it's just like, it's so bewildering, you can't even think about where to put it. At least that's how I felt. Even-minded and cheerful. I just, I don't know, I was experiencing life in all its many dimensions. I was drinking the cup of life down to the dregs. Even-minded and cheerful just sounded like boring. Let's start there. But I couldn't even get what they were trying to tell me. And I actually heard that advice before I met Swamiji and saw the practical application of it. But what it says is, all you ever have is your consciousness. Do you want to dream? Do you want to um, suffer for the dream last night or the dream in the morning? Or do we want to just live in right consciousness, behaving appropriately? You know, behaving appropriately in a sense that man, although his detachment was admirable, who refused to mourn the death of his son, might have thought about comforting his wife. And perhaps it occurred to him afterwards to do so, to try to help her. I remember when my father died. He was in his 80s, and he had been resident in a care facility because he had some kind of age-related dementia. And he was a very sweet man in those last years, and he was very popular among his, uh, the people he shared the, the home with and the staff. He was just a very nice fellow. And when he died, and I was there, and my sister and brother were also present, 
um, they were they were sad to see him go, and they they wept because they were sad that he had died. I thought to myself afterwards, how much can these people cry? I w- I would hope that they would have a different attitude toward death, but they they were missing him. But when I felt him leave his body, I felt so much joy from him and with him in the departure. He'd lived a good life. It wasn't parts of it were more of a struggle. My mother had passed before him, and it was done. You know, he it, good job, Dad. And now you can go on. This dream is over, and you can go on to the next reality, you, and you can take your consciousness with you, which was very, very joyful. So. I was just, I was literally, I was laughing, I was smiling, everything, everything was just blissful to me. I was so tuned in to his happy freedom. And uh, these staff members were coming and expressing their condolences, and they were, so many of them were crying, a surprising number were crying, and I was laughing, and my sister, who was more tuned in than I was to what was happening, she said, you're, you know, you're, you're just not behaving appropriately. These people are, are sad about it, and, and you're laughing. It makes you seem kind of crazy. And uh, she said you have to, and she said it accurately, you have to respect their feelings as well. So I wasn't able to, to curb my uh, exuberance. So I kind of moved across the room and let her deal with them. But you have to be appropriate also. Part of having the right consciousness is to be appropriate. You can't just laugh when other people are weeping, even if you see that their sorrow is causeless. Um, if you have greater wisdom, it is you are responsible for comforting those who have less. Just like when your child may come to you and tell you that the dolly has a broken arm. Oh, poor dolly, dolly has a broken arm. You don't say it's just a stupid piece of you know, wood and cloth. What difference does it make? You have to say, oh, poor Dolly's broken arm, because your child is learning right consciousness, even though it's an imaginary thing. He's, <laughs> he's practicing with that imaginary thing to learn right consciousness for the rest of the imaginary thing. And so you teach him to be compassionate and to fix Dolly's arm and to kiss it and make it all better. Um, you know you're just dealing with uh, an imaginary thing, but you're training consciousness. And it's very important to train that consciousness correctly, not to allow your children to become upset over every tiny thing. Master had the startling advice, don't always put a sweater on your children with their, when they're cold. And don't feed them right away every time when they're hungry. <laughs> now, I know people think that sounds terrible. But he says, teach them to have a little mastery over their consciousness. Teach them to be strong. And to recognize that it's, you know, I'm going to be hungry again. I can last a little while. A woman who raised five children wrote a book and she called it, Didn't I Feed You Yesterday? (laughs) It always seemed to epitomize the sort of endless nature of the physical world to me. Okay, so now let me think. Oh, I know what I was going to say, which is very important. How do we move from respecting the fact that Master says that this universe is a dream, to actually having either an, a perception of that or at least an intuitive understanding of its, tr- of its truth. Well, by experience, by introspection, and by paying attention 
to that experience. And this is why we start with some practical application of both awareness and self-discipline. And the beginning of that practical application is to notice that what Master asserts is true, that there is a duality to this universe, which when, when Master's using the image of waves on the top of the ocean, the ocean is the great infinite spirit, and the waves that happen on the surface, if a wave goes, if there's a high wave here, there has to be a trough over here. And then eventually that trough is raised up, and this wave comes down, and the overall um, volume and experience of the ocean is never changed. It's just the ocean itself springs up as waves, even can be whipped by the wind, wind into huge waves. But sooner or later, no matter how high the wave, there'll be a corresponding trough, and the overall ocean will never be affected. This is He uses this as an image to say, no matter how tumultuous um, life may seem, eventually something else will happen, and there will be a balancing reality. Now, from incarnation to incarnation, sometimes it takes before karma balances, but even in one lifetime. You know, think of it like this. Uh, you may be horribly unhappy about something that's happened, and no matter how upset you are, sooner or later you will fall asleep. And when you fall asleep, of course you may take it into your dreams, but often, and at least for part of your sleep, it won't exist anymore. It's gone. You know, your somebody you love may have died. Perhaps your hopes have been disappointed in a way that is ir- ir- irrevocable in that particular way for this incarnation. You may cry yourself to sleep, but sooner or later you'll be asleep. And your consciousness will be somewhere else. And when your consciousness is somewhere else, you see, all of circumstances have changed. Then you wake up and you realize you're back in this dream. Or simply time passes. Most people adjust to karmic challenges not because they really expand to meet them, but because they just outlast them. The way Swami talks about it is, if our consciousness, let's say, is this big, a wave of karma comes, it's this big, and we feel overwhelmed by it. And he just, in terms of spiritual growth, Swamiji tells us that if, in the moment of challenge, we can expand our consciousness to meet it, then we can make great strides in terms of finishing that karma and not having to see it again. Um, uh, Friends of mine have been challenged from time to time by Swamiji in terms of forgiveness and facing into difficult circumstances. And on several occasions when uh, people told me that they, even though they did not have the confidence in themselves that Swami was showing in them, when they did expand their consciousness to meet it, they were astonished to, to see how uh, that karma could be washed away so much more easily than they imagined when they first confronted it. But see, what happens is, let's think of it like a wave. A wave has a certain crest, but then it gradually falls. Even the largest wave will eventually hit the beach. And then it'll stretch out on the beach, and then it will dissipate. Even a tsunami will come in, no matter how big it is. It will eventually hit the beach, and it will disappear and return to the ocean. And what we often do is we really do not expand our consciousness. We just wait 
till the wave gets smaller than we are, and then we say, I'm over it. We're not really over it, we've just waited, outlasted it. But if it comes to us in this size again, if we haven't grown, it'll overwhelm us in the same way. It's all about how we respond. So, coming back to where we are with duality, understanding that the dream nature of this universe exists within our consciousness, understanding that our consciousness is the one thing that we have some control over. Now, it may not feel that immediately, but ultimately, our consciousness is real, is eternally real, and it is ourselves. I say the distinction is because I live in this house and um, I have a job, I work for Ananda, but I have all these realities here. I have a husband and there's just so many different things. I live in this body. And all of these things you know, could just change in the morning. I was at Ananda village in 1976 when a great deal of the community burned down. Um, it was exciting even at the time. I didn't lose my own house and so I don't want to be flippant about something that had a much deeper impact on other individuals than on me. But it was, in a certain sense, thrilling. It was thrilling to watch fire. Just, I don't mean that I'm some kind of a uh, what, pyromaniac. I think that's what that's called. But just to realize how puny we are. Just how tiny we are in this whole thing. And how, what folly it is to cling. Because that fire just... It just ravaged right through. It had been seven years of drought. All of our houses were built in these wooded areas. Many of those trees were so dry. We did not do good fire clearing at that time. The fire just laughed at us and just ate our houses into ash. Boom! Just like that, gone. And you know, all, all of our careful work and our everything that we did, just ash, just like that. When you see pictures of the tsunamis, that have happened occasionally in recent times, just gone like that. Now, you can either be totally frightened at all times and try to push it to one side and hold it there, or you can realize, oh, here's a lesson for me. Let me go back into the only reality that I ever had, have, which is my conscious response to this. Ananda as a whole was just magnificent. And in the movie Finding Happiness, you hear Devi talking about her response. And it was helped by her husband, Jyotish, who made a joke about the fact that their house had burned down. And she realized, what if I really lost some stuff? But everything that's really true, I still have. So we start practicing. We start practicing in little ways, even-minded and cheerful. When this happens, I don't have to you know, cling desperately to what's being taken away from me. I might, be, I might shed a few tears and even from my deep center, recognize that this is very sad. I remember when Swami Kriyananda's father died. I knew his parents at the end of their lives. His father died before his mother did. She lived only six months after. They'd been married for six months, uh, 60 years, 60 years. And when I saw her a couple of months before she died, but in that last interlude, I could see she wanted to talk about her husband. And I said, you were married for 60 years. I said, that's a long time. And I, I remember she just looked at me like this and so, so sincerely and so sweetly said, no, it wasn't. Just like that. 
mean, it was beautiful, that the life they had together. They were an exemplary couple. And it's fair when you see the spring flowers going away, when you see the autumn leaves falling off the tree, when you look in the mirror and realize that your youth is gone and you're in another part of life and you look at what used to be your darling, cute little baby boy and he's now twice as big as you are and um, perhaps attractive, but certainly not your darling little boy anymore. You can say, oh, he was so cute. It was such fun when he was mine. And then even-minded and cheerful, just calmly centered. Now, when we begin to try to live at the center point from which the dream emanates, then we begin to experience that there is a continuing reality which is my consciousness and there is this ever-changing parade of circumstances that just never ends. And you begin to realize, oh, that's what the masters are talking about. There is this eternal now, uh, this, this uh, eternal bliss, actually, this unchanging stillness at the center of everything. And the strength, the compassion, the joy, the power to cope with changing circumstances that comes from that begins to cause you to read, oh, the dream nature of the universe. Hmm, for what should I mourn? That tragedy I dreamed of last night or this tragedy that's unfolding before me. I need to respond appropriately. But it doesn't have to pull me out of my center because time is the skeleton on which this whole thing is built and time itself, it's always now. And the consciousness I have in the now is the only consciousness I will ever have. It's fascinating. This path I was saying to someone today I've been on this path since I was 18. I met Swami four years later when I was 22. This path, meaning the, the principles of self-realization. When I met Swami at the age of 22 is when it really clicked into focus for me, especially since the minute I saw him. There hasn't been one day that hasn't been really interesting. And not one day when I haven't felt, what a what a... What an extraordinary blessing it is to have a clue, <laughs> just to have a clue, and to be able to then know um, where happiness can be found and how to go about finding it. Greatest blessing of all times. We have one question. Let's take that before we go on. So if you have what seems to be an experience of God or this eternal now or anything like that, how can you tell that it's not simply as subjective as the drug-induced experience, as the dream experience, as anything else? If anything, fewer people in the world can relate to it, and it seems more subjective. Right. Uh, We were in, uh, I was with, with a group of friends, and we were in Mumbai, and we showed the movie Finding Happiness to a group of students at IIT, I think is how you pronounce it. IIT in Mumbai, extremely prestigious university. Only the creme de la creme is there. And we were showing our movie, and this young man afterwards um, threw in the words spirituality, religion, and superstition. 
as if they were all synonyms for the same reality. And I started by teasing him. I noticed that you just threw superstition in there as if it was all the same. I had made a distinction between religion and spirituality. And what I was saying to him is that spirituality is actually evidence-based. Master called it the science of religion. And it is true that the evidence in a certain sense is subjective. Not entirely so, because you can um, verify your experiences by reading the scriptures carefully and by uh, the opportunity to be with souls who are self-evidently more advanced than you. And if they can verify your experiences with experiences of your own, or you can find consistently endorsed in the scriptures the same experiences that you're having. But there is an element of how can you tell, and it is possible to be deceived. Patanjali, in his Yoga Sutra, speaks of one of the serious obstacles on the path is hallucinations, false visions, just thinking that you're having some experience and you're really not. It's the, the word, the vocabulary we have to use is that it's subconscious, which is it's a projection of your own imagination rather than superconscious, which is an expansion of your awareness into a greater reality. That's, that's where the uh, confusion can come in. Subconscious experiences like dreams, like sleep dreams, not all dreams are subconscious, but most dreams are subconscious. Mostly when you're asleep, you're in a, an imaginary world of your own making. But when you meditate or in, in some way or another, and sometimes it does happen in sleep, that superconsciousness breaks in. And superconsciousness is where your individual awareness actually expands out and connects uh, with an aspect of the infinite. Superconscious dreams have an entirely different vibration and an entirely different effect on you, even if you're asleep. So what it comes down to is Jesus, what Jesus' answer when he was asked a similar question. Um, the, the nouns were different, but it was the same question. How can you tell a false prophet from a true one? His disciples asked him. And he said, a good tree gives good fruit, a bad tree gives bad fruit, and a bad tree can never give good fruit, and a good tree does not give bad fruit. In other words, by their fruits is how he put it. You shall know them. So you can tell the quality of your experiences by the, the, the impact it has upon you, and especially by the transforming effect it has upon you. If the dream is merely... If the... Uh, experience is merely subconscious or illusory, well, let me work from the other side. If it's superconscious, it's always um, expansive. You feel more expanded from the experience. You have a greater sense of connection uh, with reality, with, with creation, and reality beyond creation. You are calm inside. There is a greater detachment from yourself. There, you find it easier. Uh, you have more patience you have more endurance, um, you have more hope, you are less inclined to be discouraged by small circumstances. In other words, you become a better, more highly functioning, happier person. Um, you can have exactly the same apparent vision, but if it doesn't have any tangible effect on your consciousness, then you need to be a little suspicious about it. And the only way you can really know is by experience and by well, the help of those who 
whose judgment you trust. Um, and in fact, I mean, a very important part of the spiritual path is really learning to discern. That's why Patanjali put it in there. You have to learn to discern what a false vision is. You have to develop the sensitivity um, to, to really recognize genuinely spiritual vibrations. And it's not as hard as you think. And what you're also learning to trust is you're, you're really learning to trust your own ability to discern. And we usually learn that by making mistakes. We put all our eggs in a basket that is holy in the sense that there's a lot of broken places and stuff falls through <laughs> instead of holy, which is really a gift from God. And we have to have the courage to make mistakes. Um, what Swamiji often suggests is if you're not certain, take it one step at a time. And in fact, false visions often encourage ourselves to behave in impractical, foolish ways um, because we become all emotional. We become all off-center and has to be done now and has to be done like this. Whereas true, superconscious experiences of anything um, just make us even more able to um, respond appropriately. And we don't feel frantic and compelled to do impractical things. We just know that God is in charge and it will all come out as it should in the end. Um, these are very big learnings. That's why even I, I'm reading through this chapter today, The Dream Nature of the Universe. When I saw it, I just thought, oh dear, <laughs> you know, how am I going to persuade people to believe that the universe is just a dream when I myself find it hard to believe. And I, I just said, it just doesn't seem like a dream. But I have found that when I integrate into my everyday life the implications of what if it were a dream, I find that I feel more in touch with an underlying reality and less compelled by the transitory nature of this world. The transitory nature of this world is self-evident. And one of the things that teaches us is simply experience. You know, we hear it, but then we live as if it were true. And then after a while, the experiences we have when we live as if um, awaken in us an actual experience of what is. Uh, when you're living according to high principles, even if at first it's only an affirmation or a, a, a creative visualization, you are affirming and visualizing a reality that is actually there. And by that conscious act of determined will, what you're doing is you're attuning your vibration with a higher vibration and, and those will merge. It's not just a subconscious dream that has no reality. What you are affirming when you're moving toward the, the revealed, the revelations of the masters, is you are putting yourself in tune and then um, vibrations merge. And, and then there's no question as to whether or not uh, this is superconscious. You just know. You look at your hand, it's there. You feel in your heart, you know. And, and that, that's the beginning of faith. Faith is built on actual experience. So friends, the dream nature of the universe, we made it through. It's been a joy.
to spend this time with you.